So this evening, we're looking at the wedding celebration at Cana and the catering crisis that launched Jesus's public ministry. You can find it if you want to, if you want to see it in your Bibles, it's in John chapter 2, verses 1 to 11. I mean, I love this story. So when I started preparing for this talk, I had loads of ideas of what I could speak about. Strangely, they all came to nothing because God had other plans. So this evening, I'm going to talk about the impact of a mother's love and then the impact of God's mothering love. We're not going to have the passage read because with Tim's help, and it almost went wrong as you saw, with Tim's help, we're going to watch it instead via two clips from The Chosen. So Tim, if you want to go for the first clip now, that would be great. So they've run out of wine. And it's only the first day of a multi-day celebration. Why is that such a disaster, I was thinking? Well, obviously it's going to ruin the celebrations if there's no more wine. But also it reflects, as you saw there, as you saw from Mary, it will reflect very badly on the bride's family. It implies they're poor. And actually in the Chosen's depiction, the bride's family are poor and there is a limit to how much they can afford. Plus, the bridegroom's father is very rich and important and doesn't like his son marrying into this family. We'll come to that a bit later. But it also reflects quite badly on Thomas, who's the caterer. Who's going to want to use him again? So as I was thinking about that, it got me thinking, do we ever run out of things? And if I was standing here two years ago, the answer would be emphatically no. Assuming we had the money we could order pretty much anything online and have it delivered to us. It would be here usually within a day or two. People facing survival situations, so if you were in the mountains or cast adrift on the oceans, they tend to exhibit a primal fear of not having enough, whether it's water, food, shelter, but not the rest of us, not in our everyday lives, except that the pandemic has, I think, put all of us into what has felt like a survival and may still feel like a survival situation. And it's brought out this primal fear of not having enough. And I think that's been true for many Christians just as much as for everyone else. There was, um, there was a video I saw at the start of the, well, I didn't see it at the start of the first lockdown. It comes from the start of the first lockdown that shows this quite clearly. A U.S. pastor, locked in, uh, stuck at home, filmed a little message on his iPhone for his church family, telling them not to worry, God's in control, God will provide. It was a reassuring message, but it lost its credibility when the camera sort of panned round and it showed that at one end of the pastor's living room was completely stacked up with toilet roll. I mean, in the first lockdown... The hoarding started with toilet rolls and we ran out of them. And then there was a run on, I think, pasta and chopped tomatoes and the shops ran out of them. Last autumn, of course, much closer to us, it was fuel for our cars. The rumours started, people panicked, people whose tanks were already half full went to the garage to fill up. They didn't really need it, but they went anyway. And so the garages ran out. Um, For me, 
And slightly embarrassingly, there was a very specific pressure point, and that was gas. You see, our house in Scotland, in the Highlands of Scotland, relies on gas for heating and cooking. And two or three times a year, Calla come with a big tanker and they fill up our tanks. And they have telemetry and they can see when the tank's getting low. And usually when they go about 25% full, they come along and fill them up. It works fine. But we were there at the start of December and the tanks were at 15% and there was no sign of Calla. Um, now, they told me on the phone and they told me on the website that they would be there by the 11th of December. But I wasn't sure I really believed them. And then their website... I noticed stopped promising they'd be there by the 11th of December and simply said, we're sorry, but due to heavy demand, deliveries are taking much longer than expected. To make things worst, the forecast for the weeks before Christmas was for snow, which stops the tanker getting up the drive. We know that from previous experience. So I began to plan what we would do if Calla didn't get there by Christmas. When we came back to Bath, I left the heating on a ridiculously low level because I reckon that if we eked it out, we might just about have enough to get through, uh, to keep the Arga going until Christmas dinner, basically, and then that was probably it. This worry and speculation began to consume me and became more like an obsession, until Mary said something brutally, but quite helpfully, along the lines of, why are you wasting so much time worrying about something when it will not change what happens? I mean, it may have been my wife speaking, but I heard Jesus in Matthew 6 saying very clearly, do not worry about your life, what you will eat or drink or burn in your boiler and arga. The <laughs> pagans run after all these things and your heavenly father knows that you need them. You'll notice that's not a suggestion from Jesus. It's a command. Do not worry. I know all this in my head. But why can't I live it, live it out? Why can't I get it into my heart? We're going to come back to that question after the second clip. But before we watch the second clip, I want to focus on the exchange we saw between Mary and Jesus. It's clear that Jesus wasn't intending to do a miracle at, these, at this wedding. He was simply there to enjoy the wedding, enjoy the celebrations with his family and disciples. But Mary, as we saw, was anxious for her friend, the mother of the bride. She didn't want her to be exposed to such public humiliation. You'll notice that Mary knew that Jesus could help. So there may not have been any public miracles before this point, but there had certainly been private ones because Mary knew what Jesus could do. And she pleaded with him and we saw Jesus respond, it's not my time, I'm not supposed to be launching my public ministry now. But Mary persists, and faced with his mother, Jesus changes his mind. So the, I think the love between Mary and Jesus, the attachment they have for each other, means that he does it anyway. He wasn't supposed to do it, but he does it anyway. I think this could do wonders for our prayer lives. How many times do I think about praying about something and then sort of think, well, I've prayed about this a number of times before, and get the sense that God's will seems set, you know, almost cast in stone, and I'm not sure I'm going to say anything that changes his mind. Well, Jesus does change his mind here because of Mary's petition. So let's remember that when we come to pray. There's a dynamic element to prayer that I won't pretend to understand, but it means we should never shrink back or give up and feel it's not worth praying. 
Right, we're going to go back to the wedding, and Thomas is hopefully shutting the door again. As I said, the reason Jesus didn't want to do a miracle was because it wasn't time for him to go public. He didn't want all that attention, or at least not yet. In the first clip, you may have seen an apparently random conversation between Mary Magdala and one of Jesus' disciples, Thaddeus, and you may have thought, what on earth is going on there? They're talking about the difference between being a blacksmith and a stonemason. If a blacksmith does something wrong, and I think you've already heard this, if a blacksmith does something wrong, they can put the iron back in the fire and correct things. A stonemason can't do that. Once he started cutting a block of stone, he's committed. The chosen is using this as um, a picture of what's about to happen to Jesus. Once he does this miracle, it's all out in the open. He won't be able to go back. I love that bit where um, Mary says thank you to Jesus across the, um, across the guests for providing the wine and ensuring the party is going to go on for quite some time. Um, I do want to look at the miracle. In the feeding of the 5,000, Jesus takes a few loaves of fish, few loaves and fish and he multiplies them extravagantly. Here it's not multiplication, it's transformation, ordinary wine to exquisite fine, sorry, ordinary water to exquisite fine wine. And whilst this miracle is about physical transformation, it also points to Jesus' mastery of time because he took a process that should take years and for fine wine, literally years, and he can somehow, he constrained it into just one moment. You'll notice that We don't follow a God of sufficiency. We follow a God of abundance. We're, in fact, super abundance. If you remember the feeding of the 5,000 and there were all those baskets of food that were left over at the end, well, now, in this situation, if you were Jesus and you thought, I, I probably do want to meet Mary's request of avoiding embarrassment for the bride's family, how much wine would you have made? If it was me, I'm looking at the numbers there, I would have thought maybe the equivalent of 50 or 100 bottles ought to have done the trick. That should have kept them going for a while. Jesus produced the equivalent of 900 bottles of this amazing wine, far more than could ever have been drunk by those guests. He's definitely the person to invite to your party. Um, I'm sure there was wine from that miracle being stored and treasured and then drunk in Cana for many, many years to come. So I want to go back to my question from earlier. It's really a question to myself. We have a God who provides abundantly, but we, or at least I, struggle to grasp the assurance of abundance that Jesus gives us. And he does give it to us. Um, Going back to Matthew, in the message translation of Matthew 6, Jesus says, people who don't know God and the way he works fuss over what they will eat and drink and wear, but you know God and how he works. Don't worry about missing out. You'll find all your everyday human concerns will be met. And then here's Paul in 2 Corinthians 9, 8. And God is able to bless you abundantly, So that in all things, at all times, having all that you need, you will abound in every good work. 
Now, I know those verses. I've heard them a number of times, and, and there are many others like them. And I believe that they mean that physically, emotionally, spiritually, God will provide us with everything we need for our lives. Not necessarily everything we want, but everything we need. And in particular, everything we need to do the work he's given us to do and to bear fruit for him. So why don't I live those verses out? Why does why do worry and speculation seem to so easily get a foothold in my life? Why don't I have a strong assurance of God's provision, an assurance of abundance? Well, I, I want to look at human relationships and development. How, does it, how did it work for us physically and emotionally when we were born into this world? Where did we get a sense of security from and confidence that there will always be enough for us, which allowed us to flourish as we grew up? Well, of course, we got it from our mothers. The mother provides a safe space for the baby to grow inside her, and then once the baby's born, she feeds and nourishes and comforts the child. If you know a bit of psychology, and I only know a bit of psychology, you may have heard of attachment theory. Attachment, that's that's what describes this very strong bond between the child and the mother. And psychologists have found that it's attachment or attachment love that's so key to a child's healthy development. Now, at this point, you may be wondering where I'm going with this, especially if you know me, because you'll know that a big part of my own story over the past 10 years has been pursuing the answer to the question, what did God mean when he created the masculine heart and how a man's relationship with his earthly father and the wounds that he takes, and he often takes from that father, are so crucial to how a man relates to his heavenly father. Can I just say, nothing I'm saying today is seeking to undermine the importance of all that, but I want to go back to mothers because it was God who thought, who first thought of something as beautiful as motherhood and a mother's love. So what I want to ask us as we think about whether we have the assurance of abundance is do we relate to God as a mother? Do we know God's love mothering us? If this sounds a bit odd... It shouldn't do because there is mother imagery throughout the Old Testament and the New Testament and also in the writings of the saints down through the ages. Mother imagery of God. I'm going to give you a few examples. Uh, Isaiah 49, 15, this is God speaking. He says, can a mother forget her nursing child? Can she feel no love for the child she has born? Even if that were possible, I will not forget you. And then in Psalm 131, David talks about his soul being like a weaned child. Jesus does it as well in Luke 13, 34. Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you who kill the prophets and stone those sent to you, how often have I longed to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings? And so does Paul, actually, in Galatians and 1 Thessalonians. But if I'm speaking, but speaking personally, mother love is not a category of God's love that I think I've been aware of very much. And it's not one that I'm sure I've actually received until perhaps the last month when I have been forced to reflect on my behaviour when I was worrying about running out of gas. Now, perhaps the strongest and most tender mother imagery is from Isaiah 66. It's right at the end of Isaiah in verses 11 to 14. And this is God talking to the children of Jerusalem. For for children of Jerusalem, read us. And God says, 
For you will nurse and be satisfied at comforting breasts. You will drink deeply and delight in overflowing abundance. You will nurse and be carried and dandled on her knees. As a mother comforts her child, so I will comfort you. When you see this, your heart will rejoice and you will flourish like grass. So it's God's mothering love that provides the assurance of abundance that allows us to flourish. I think that's been part of my issue, that I haven't been aware, really, of God's mothering love. So I want to suggest that in our relationship with God, if we're to develop fully in the way that God desires, we need to allow God to mother us. We need to know God's strong mothering love. And God promises to do this for each one of us, whatever the story of our own earthly mother has been. I want to finish by um, just talking a little bit about Dallas Willard, who was a Christian philosopher known for his writings on spiritual formation. He died in 2013 at the age of 77. It was only in the very last year of his life that he came to a new realisation or a new understanding he came to see our salvation, which you'll remember Jesus told Nicodemus was like being born again, he came to see our salvation as a new attachment to God. He had no time to write a book because he knew he was dying, so he got his friend Jim Wilder to write down their conversations in a book called Renovated. And I'm quoting from that book, the Jim Wilder book now. Dallas's mind raced ahead of mine in our conversations about attachment he wondered, is salvation itself a new and active attachment with God that forms and transforms our identities? In the human brain, identity and character are formed by who we love. Attachments are powerful and long-lasting. Ideas can be changed much more easily. Salvation, through a new, loving attachment to God that changes our identities, is a very relational way to understand our salvation. We are both saved and transformed through attachment, love from and for God. It's powerful stuff, that. So what do we do? Well, I suggest we attach to God. We ask God to mother us. And as, as I close, let's do that now. I'm going to deliberately pray a prayer in the first person because it applies to me. And perhaps it applies to you too. So let's pray. Creator of my soul, creator of all mother love and mother need, I need you here. I need your mother love. I need the assurance of abundance. I need a deep, bonded love with you. I need attachment here in the place of my soul, which you created for attachment. Come, healing God, and heal me here. I open my story of mothering to you. God, I invite you into my need for love and nourishment. Forgive me for taking this need to other places. I'm giving all this to you now, God. I forgive my mum. I do. I forgive her and release her. And I invite your mother love, your comfort and peace into this place in my soul. Fill me with attachment, love, and come into my fears that there will not be enough for me. And fill me 
with the assurance of your abundance. In Jesus' name, amen.